This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Weird Stones and Magic Keys. What makes a children's book a classic? Ooh, okay. I'm really excited for this episode. <laughs> not that I'm not excited for all the other episodes, but, you know, we've done quite a few heavier episodes recently, so this is like a trip down nostalgia lane. Um, you know, a chance for us to sort of settle into something <laughs> comfy and magical and whimsical, and I'm super yeah. excited. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, when I was uh, sketching a few notes for this one, I was thinking of you. So, <laughs> so there we go. Inspired by inspired by Madeline. Um, <laughs> the thing is, we talk about all sorts of segments of speculative fiction, and there's this huge audience that, would, you know, admittedly probably shouldn't be listening to our show because we're we're PG thirteen at best. Yes. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss speculative fiction, which is aimed at, you know, this voracious audience, which is children. Yeah, uh, not least because, so for several reasons. First of all, I am a firm believer that adults can and should read children's fiction. I think it's, uh, it often gets overlooked. Yeah, but also because, I mean, several of our listeners, you might have kids yourself. You might want a good recommendation for children's books for both you to read and for you to read to your children. So honestly, we, we've we been neglecting this, um, but, but no more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and also we do have a children's author co-hosting this podcast. Yes. So um, we should utilise you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do actually have a whole degree um, in writing for children. Um, and, you know, I've done the Golden Egg Academy. I've, I've done my master's um, and, you know, I have a, I've, I've written children's books. So I'm super glad to be getting onto this topic because it's something very near and dear to my heart. Um, and I think that there's a lot that you can learn from children's books, which can be applied to adult books. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really interesting um, quote from Phil Philip Pullman the other day that got me thinking about this. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, so I can't remember exactly the way he said it, but he mm. basically said, some themes are too big for adult books for those you actually need a children's story. And that seems to be a contradictory statement until you think about the amount that children demand from their literature. Um, and actually, he's got a point. There are some stories which are almost too big to fit in a, a typical adult setup that you would, in fact, need sort of almost the limitless imagination of childhood to encapsulate properly. So I, I kind of agree with him. And it did get me thinking about enduring children's stories and what makes a classic. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Children's books are incredible because they are designed for a certain mindset. Um, and having written for both adults and for children, I can say that it is much harder to write for children because you are not losing any of the complexity of theme, of uh, character or, or, or of, of plot often. Um, 
but what you are doing is making it more accessible. Um, it's like trying to get all of the good stuff into a smaller package, and it requires a significant amount of efficiency, a lot of editing, um, and a lot of concision. Uh, which, again, is why I do think that looking at children's fiction can be very, very helpful, even if you don't write children's fiction, because it's a great lesson in learning to be concise, precise, and also learning to show rather than tell, because children's fiction evokes the imagination. And that is something that sometimes people are less confident doing for adult books. Uh, which is why I think that children's fiction can feel so vivid, so alive, and at times for adults it can also feel almost sort of like it jumps too much because you, you, you almost feel like, how did you get from A to B in this instance? Whereas for a child you're like, yeah, of course, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So um, I guess we should sort of nail down and kind of ask ourselves, what exactly is a children's classic? Because obviously there's lots of children's fiction out there, but there are some texts which we just find ourselves sort of narrowing in on that just feel like the canon of children's fiction, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, that's a good point. And for the purposes of this discussion, I think we should say that Yes, we will be discussing conventional children's classics. Um, yeah. Also, acknowledged modern classics. So people have said, yeah, this isn't a hundred years old, but it is yeah. actually clearly a classic. Um, and books which are not officially <laughs> books which are not officially classics yet, um, but it's pretty clear they they will be. They will endure as far as we can see at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, bear in mind that this is going to be more European-centric, uh, simply because a lot of the children's classics that we were exposed to and that we currently have kind of the easiest access to uh, were written in English for a European audience. Now, we acknowledge that there is a canon, a whole canon of Americans' children classic literature, which we're really not going to be touching on, simply because those weren't the first examples of classic books that we encountered. Um, and there's an interesting discussion there on mindset difference between British classic literature, uh, sorry, British children's classics, um, sort of, and, and the direction uh, that US children's classics tend to go in, um, particularly for the older ends of the canons. So we're obviously not making a comment on validity. And if our selection doesn't include a book that you feel is a classic, don't think that we are looking down on it. Um, in fact, we'd love it if you let us know of other texts that you feel kind of belong on that list. This is not a definitive list. We only have an hour. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's have a broad definition to work from then. So merely being old does not automatically make a book a classic. Um, a book has to have something about it that makes it endure. And as yes. Madeline has said, children are generally harder to please than adults with their fiction. So a children's classic has really already stood the test of time if it's reached that, that level. Yeah. A good working definition for a children's classic is a book which can be presented to new readers in fresh ways without losing any of their shining qualities. Now, anyone here who's ever had to try and get 
children to read will know that obviously there are some kids who just devour books um (laughs) but often it's quite hard uh particularly if it's an old text um people might struggle to actually get kids to engage now a children's classic will be one that kids will just fall in with despite what some might perceive as the barriers of time and again it doesn't have to be an old text but that's something worth thinking about yeah Um, This doesn't mean, obviously, that a children's classic has to be perfect or that it won't have things like dated language, old-fashioned ideas, or even some ideas which we would now find repellent. Overall, though, the book will still shine despite these things. Yes. So let's take a little look at what sets a children's classic apart from the rest. Yeah. So to start with, I mean, I've we've sort of divided these ideas down into like subsections and then we've got items within the subsections so we'll go through and we'll try and think of examples as we go through I think and and say what we mean so that we're not just throwing words at you yes um so the first thing is memorable characters and I do think this is a really strong element of of children's classic well children's literature full stop but children's classic literature definitely um, yeah. Generally, you'll find that the protagonist is believable and age-appropriate, um, and generally a child. Not always. There are some children's books where the protagonist is actually an adult for, an, for some odd reason. Um, yeah. But there will be something childlike. There will be childlike qualities within that character. Yeah. Um, um, as a general ballpark, uh, depending what age you're writing for, uh, the children... Uh, Character, the child characters tend to be a little bit older than the age group. Yeah. So, for example, uh, if you're writing middle grade, uh, sort of lower middle grade, it might be sort of eight to 11 year olds, um, in which case your protagonist is going to be about 11 or 12. Um, if you are writing sort of for more kind of upper, upper sort of middle grade, so maybe for those 12, 13s, you're going to have a 14 year old. Um, if you're sort of writing in general, 14 is kind of a good benchmark for middle grade anyway, between 11 and 14. If it's for YA, most of the time actually you will tend to find the characters are around 17 years old. Um, because as you get older, uh, you don't children or or sort of teenagers no longer need someone who's necessarily older than them but someone who is relatable to them 17 works because it tends to be that on the cusp number yeah uh now as jules mentioned sometimes you do have adults now what you might also find is anthropomorphic creatures which is that you will tend to find that in a lot of classic children's fiction uh when they are adults they tend not to be human Um, And for some reason, this kind of bypasses things. Of course, there are examples where you do have adult main characters throughout who are human. Um, These are rare, but they do work. And as Jules said, there is usually something about them which uh, children can associate with. Interestingly enough, one of the ways that some people get by this is actually, it's not just an adult main character, it tends to be an elderly character. Um, And for some reason, uh, in children's fiction, children tend to associate well with elderly characters. yeah because apparently their brains are more similar right (laughs) i've I've, I've heard (laughs) yeah well i mean i think and also there's the perceived amount of control they have over their own lives which you know we'll get into later because that's another theme but 
Um, if you think of something like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is a, a technically it's a modern classic, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you've obviously got the four Pevensey children who are between the ages of, I believe, seven and 11, I think they are roughly, you never get the exact ages, but you get the impression that that's where they are because Peter's clearly on the verge of becoming a young man. Mm -hmm. um, and Susan's about sort of, Susan's about 10 or 11, Peter's about 12, maybe. Yeah. And then you have the two younger children, Lucy's, Lu Lucy's the only one we're really sure about. She's supposed to be seven or eight. Mm -hmm. um, which then kind of makes all the things they have to do in that series really quite messed up if you think about it from a. Yeah. A real life perspective but there are so many other characters in there as well that would be perceived as adult characters so mr tumnus aslan himself yeah mr and mrs beaver who are clearly married and have a house etc yes um, and and yet you get away with it because as madeline said obviously you've got these anthropomorphic animals which you know is another thing that is, is on our list of things to talk about so um, yeah. Lewis really did kind of tap into all of that. The other thing is you could have a fantastical creature. So Tolkien didn't really write specifically for children. It's just he wrote fantasy at a time when fantasy was for children. Ergo, it was for children by default. Um, yeah. So you have The Hobbit. I mean, Bilbo Baggins is, is in his 50s um, in The Hobbit when Gandalf turns up and says, do you want to go on an adventure? Here are all these dwarves. They're going to stay at your house tonight. That's okay, right? I'm throwing a dwarf rave. <laughs> and he gets pulled into things. Um, normally, you would not expect a child to be like, oh God, yeah, 50-year-old, that's totally my kind of protagonist. But Bilbo is effectively a very, very young hobbit by hobbit standards. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, and he's not human. He's a magical creature, effectively. So it kind of, you know, short circuits that entire process. Absolutely. Um, you'll also find morally grey characters. Um, yeah. Weirdly, this is, that, this is an interesting one, actually. <laughs> it seems to be a staple. Um, the way it's done in children's fiction, as far as I can see, seems to be different to how it's done in adult fiction. In adult fiction, there seems to be a little flag wave of this person is not entirely to be trusted, but nor are they entirely to be discounted. In children's fiction, you may find that the morally grey characters never have their motives fully explained. And this really reflects the child's version of the world, whereby adults are quite often inexplicable in their actions because they are not sharing the same perspective as a child is yeah um and what's interesting is that the morally gray characters the sort of the particularly the unexplained kind of things it does tend to be reflected in the adult characters in children's fiction um, you do get it with the children's ch characters as well and this is particularly interesting because um sort of one of the big things that children's fiction sort of tries to do is develop empathy in their readers. Empathy tends to be something which um, is very central. And obviously these things change over time. So depending on when, the, when this book was written, you will find different themes kind of being pushed through. And empathy tends to be something that we find in a lot more kind of modern classics. Um, about sort of understanding uh, both yourself, feelings, and the people around you. Uh, and so it's very interesting to have morally grey characters in this way, because there is this kind of, this acknowledgement of how unexplainable and inexplicable adult 
sort of actions tend to be and how our own feelings can be so mixed up and it, it kind of creates this very interesting dichotomy i think which is one of the things that marks children's fiction as so unique yeah definitely um i'm thinking of i i think you could argue that these are 2B classics and that is the uh, Philip Pullman His Dark Materials series whereby you have I mean Mrs Coulter is clearly the villain for most of those much of those books right up until sort of like two thirds of the way through the third book so she's kind of mm. like I personally feel that she pissed her her ability to be a good guy up the wall by that yes. point in the story however um, Lord Azrael is um He's clearly not a good guy, but he's also not really a bad guy. He's willing to do bad things to achieve his ends. And his ends are neither good nor bad, but you can see how he got there. So he is very much a morally grey character. Both of them are absolutely appalling parents, as far yes. as Lyra is concerned. Um, and But they're not necessarily abusive parents either. So no. that is, is the very definition of morally grey in child terms, where you've got two people you should be able to look up to who you should feel are, are almost God on earth for you, and mm -hmm. yet they are so fallible so early on in her life that she may as well have been raised by the fairies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a, I think it's a perfect example and really does capture exactly that. Um, and probably, again, one of the reasons that Pullman's work is going to be sort of considered among the classics yeah, definitely. Um, in years to come. Uh, as part of that, you also tend to get larger-than-life characters. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're pantomime characters, though sometimes you do get kind of pantomime-esque sort of yep. characters. Um, but this isn't done in a kind of, in a form of mockery. Um, it tends to be very, very clever. And larger-than-life characters... Um, are big, they're vivid, and one of the things that marks them out is that they are unashamedly so. So it's not embarrassing, it is natural, it works, and it's one of the things that actually you see, uh, which I think causes problems whenever people try to adapt classics, is that they will try to make these larger-than-life characters uh, fit if that makes sense, what we would perceive as the more Stanislavski kind of way of, of sort of doing cinema. Yeah. Um, and when you try and tone it down, it stops working entirely because the character no longer functions if they are not 100% full to their potential. Um, but when you do embrace it, you create something which feels memorable um, and real, not realistic, but real. Um, I think a really good example of that is if you look at how Paddington, the Paddington films, were yeah. um, adapted, is that they basically embraced these larger-than-life characters, uh, the villains, Paddington himself, etc., without trying to kind of make it more realistic, make it more sort of based on reality, and instead created something which felt true and heartfelt. Yeah, definitely. I think the whole larger-than-life characters thing is why up until, I'm going to say comparatively recently, but we could say up until about sort of 50 years ago, probably, because that's when the language change would have made it more of a barrier. Yeah. Um, a lot of children read a lot of Dickens. Yeah. And Dickens wasn't considered a great and literary classic. It was kind of considered 
yes, this is this is slightly more highbrow entertainment. It's okay if they read it, but it was these larger than life characters that probably made it accessible. And I'm willing to bet a lot of children skipped a lot of the long descriptive passages just to get to the character interactions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, it's another thing where I can sort of also understand why uh, A Christmas Carol, yeah, um, you know, was adapted so well into the, for the Muppets. Yeah. Honestly, and why it's probably one of the best adaptations of that of that story. It sort of also explains why things like Roald Dahl have enduring appeal, because again, it's these larger than life characters who still act in ways that children find inexplicable, the same way the adults around them are inexplicable. And yet yeah. you can engage with them because it's almost being presented with the cartoon version of life, which is often a little bit less scary than actual life is. Yes, but at the same time, um, it again, it's that interesting thing of it is it's car- it is cartoonish. But what is it to be cartoonish? Um, yeah. It is the simplicity of everything being shown, if that makes sense. Definitely. Um, rather than the kind of the cold, cut off life of adulthood, where again, for children who have not fully developed their ability with empathy. Um, everything being out in the open instead of being kind of secretive and requiring subtle cues um, is a big thing and is also why these characters can feel so truthful even if they don't feel realistic. Um, We mentioned obviously anthropomorphic uh, characters. Um, Animal characters, uh, both as companions or protagonists, uh, tend to feature very strongly in uh, classic children's books. Um, because we love animals and children in particular love animals um, and so it's great when they they are either sort of anthropomorphized animals going about their daily life aka the wind in the willows uh, which is great because of course if you if you read the wind in the willows there are also humans like <laughs> toad ends up in animals. human jail it's really funny in some respects i mean it's horrible but it's also really funny it's just yeah. a human jail and there happens to be a little toad and they've sewn him a little stripy jail uniform um anyway (laughs) but also with having sort of pets and stuff like that and you do get a lot of kind of uh fiction where sometimes it isn't even anthropomorphized animals sometimes they are just animals who are kind of the main characters or who who do play significant parts um just being themselves just being animals um and to be honest, I think we should see more of that in adult fiction. I don't know why we shy away from it. It's it's but brilliant. Why like, can't you have an animal compa- Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, I always feel like I maybe give the animals in my books a bit too much personality. And then I think, no, anyone who spend any time with animals know that they're not just this unthinking blob of meat that happens to be walking around. Yeah, so. it's it, a lot of people in the sort of the first of part of, of the Sons of Thestian just really liked the horses. Yeah. Uh, because they just happen to have a lot of character. Just the fact that you've got Yonatan's bay, who is just very sort of pompous. Yes. And, and Rufus's much more grounded, sort of working black mare, who who doesn't give him the time of day. And, and the original readers just are like, we just like how 
how they they seem to have their own little story going on and honestly i just couldn't not um and i have i've used animals a lot in in my in my children's fiction because i just think that it's just such a brilliant tool that you kind of you reach out for and it feels so natural yeah i find that books don't really feel complete to me if they don't have animals um anyway uh Another thing character-wise is, this is going to sound contradictory, but bear with me, villains that make sense and reflect conflicts in the child readers' lives. Um, When I say villains that make sense, that doesn't mean the child needs to understand completely a villain's motives. Mm -hmm. It's just, it needs to fit in with the child's view of the world. Um, And that can depend very much on the age of the child. Um, and how much life experience they've got because obviously if they're younger they've probably got less life experience um, but villains need to need to fit that pattern of being inexplicable because the things that are important to adults are not the things that are important to children um, and even very bright children might go but that doesn't make you know that I can see why you're doing it but that doesn't make sense I remember being 10 years old and there, you know, Margaret Thatcher was still Prime Minister then, and there was, it was one of the things that had caused a big protest and, you know, I, I'm old enough that I actually remember the poll tax riots so there we go, <laughs> fun fact but I remember thinking this doesn't make uh, you know, I, I genuinely cannot see what your motives are here because you're saying this one thing, it's making this huge group of people hundreds of thousands of people really unhappy because they don't have money and they cannot feed their own families Mm. wouldn't it be more logical to do obviously i did not understand the tax situation in in the uk at at 10 years old Um, yeah i can't entirely say i fully understand everything now because i'm sure i don't have all the information but it's that kind of this person is acting in a villainous manner i can see why they're doing it but it doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't fit my worldview if that makes sense yeah absolutely and this doesn't mean that you can't have adult characters who are tapping into this unknown world um but you do need to interpret it in a way that a child understands um one book that actually for me really kind of did this very well was Maz Evans's uh, Who Let the Gods Out, where um, you have the the main character, um, his mother ha- is basically suffering from dementia, it appears, in the first book. And he is desperately trying to hide this because he doesn't want her taken away from him. He doesn't have a father. Um, and at the same time with his mother suffering from dementia, um, you know, all of the, the stuff that adults do sort out, like taxes, like electricity bills, like all of that stuff isn't happening because his mother is basically being kept hidden in the house. Um, and so every now and again, sort of Maz kind of touches on this idea of the big scary letter and it's in this big red envelope. And of course, it's one of these letters that is basically saying, this is your last warning to pay your bills. And it doesn't go into exact detail of what is what is the bill that needs to be paid. Uh, you know, it doesn't go into the exact form of sort of taxation or stuff like that, but it does evoke this fear of kind of, of, of bills, which children actually, particularly in the UK, are 
much more likely to be aware of than we think. And I'm saying particularly in the UK because I know about about the poverty situation in the UK um, and how many children are basically living in poverty and very aware of the situation of their family, even if they don't understand all the nuances of it. It is something which can be understood and which can evoke this fear, this dread, and this understanding that there are people who will try to take advantage of that. So you don't need all of that very, very kind of um, nuance and, and difficult adult kind of stuff. You just need to in the interpretation of a child um, and it can be very evocative and work incredibly well. Yeah. Okay, moving on to other things that you would probably find in a classic children's piece of fiction. So, yes. um, unconventional methods of entertainment. Yes! So a good example <laughs> is the odd language choices. Uh, Roald Dahl is a prime example of this now look i realize there are people out there who don't like rod Dahl, and that's that's fine he seems to have been a thoroughly nasty person in real life but yes. you can't deny he wrote damn good children's fiction yes um that you know taught children to be strong in very dangerous situations and difficult situations that describe things like child abuse to them without actually exposing them to the traumatic aspects of child abuse but mm -hmm. enough so they'd recognize it and he was funny and entertaining um, you know, perhaps a good parallel would be David Walliams nowadays. Uh, but one thing Roald Dahl did was his gobble funk made up language. So, um, you know, things like whiz pop. And, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Is it ucky slush? Ucky slush. Something's gross. It's ucky slush. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the thing with Roald Dahl, and that again you see in a lot of classic fiction is um, the recognition that words can be used for play. Yeah. Which is something children do all the time. They make up nonsensical rhymes. Um, you know, you're thinking again, and it depends on the age group, you know, you're looking at. Um, that is a big important factor. But, um, you know, past a certain time, uh, children kind of almost get a bit sick of words because of the way that was sort of being taught. And so returning it to sounds uh, and play and things which are sound funny and look funny and and appeal to this innate sense of 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 everything of emotion uh using um alliteration um using uh I can't say it, onomatopoeia. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, incorporating literal sounds like bang, whiz, etc. into words um, just brightens it up. It brings it to life and it engages children in a way that is new, interesting and funny. Yeah, definitely. And of course, you don't have to do it the full Roald Dahl way. You can also do it in other ways as well. Um, you know, Roald Dahl went <laughs> the full the full ham right there with that. <laughs> um, but there are more subtle ways of doing it. But it's the understanding that language should be something which is fun and interesting to listen to and to read, um, not just a medium to provide the story. Definitely. Um, yeah, another thing which, you know, this isn't going to sound unconventional, but it, it is actually quite unconventional when you consider it from a child's perspective. And that yeah. is the child protagonist is placed in a scenario where they have control or responsibility for what, whatever's going on in the plot. 
Yes. Um, I mean, there is a reason why a lot of children's fiction tend to sort of kill the adults. Or they're or they separate or, they're being, or they're absent. Yeah, yeah. No, they're sent off to live with an aunt or something because their mother has to go abroad to be with their father and they can't take the children. That's what used to happen when, in old fiction. Now that doesn't seem to be much of an excuse. So, so they kind yeah. of off the parents quite early on. Yes. Um, so, it, you know, it becomes a situation where a scenario is created whereby the child there is no reasonable reason for why someone else wouldn't be sort of stepping in um and so the child has to take command of their situation um and actually has the power to do so um which is very empowering yeah definitely yeah you also get extravagant settings i mean again charlie and the chocolate factory perfect example of this yeah who doesn't remember that river of chocolate in the room full of everything that's edible yeah absolutely it's evocative it's interesting and the reality is that a real chocolate factory would not be anywhere near as fun but <laughs> I, was, I was devastated when i was like you're visiting the cadbury's factory and it turns out that it's not that interesting at all yeah there's no actual river of chocolate and a boat made of a boiled sweet or anything like that no (laughs) no you can't just sample things either um okay uh talking animals now we talked about anthropomorphic animals but these are animals whereby the child protagonist for, for a brief period of time has the ability to actually just understand what the animals are saying to each other so like charlotte webb charlotte's webb yeah where you've got fern who is you know, she's a quiet, intuitive child um, who begs for Wilbur, the runt pig's life, and says she'll raise him herself. And she's at a time in her life where she hasn't quite hit puberty yet, but she's not really a very young child anymore. And she understands things like empathy um, yeah. and, uh, you know, interconnectedness between different types of life. And so she can understand what the animals are saying to each other. So for a short while there, she she does actually... It's not not a Dr. Doolittle thing. It's more like she can interpret what they're saying, um, which unfortunately she loses towards the end of the book because she then heads towards puberty and being a young woman. And it's something that you only really, really have in childhood. It's that childish um, innocence of perspective. But that's something that is very effective, the idea that children do within themselves have some kind of ability that unfortunately does get lost at adulthood but is essential for the the plot of whatever book you're doing at the time yeah it's something which is used quite a lot this idea that children have something a sense of wonder as jill says um and talking animals are a very common point yeah. Um, you also get the, you know, fantasy juxtaposed with reality for a anything is possible kind of setup. Um, and this can happen even if what you are writing isn't technically fantasy. Yeah. Um, like, for example, if we go back to Paddington, uh, technically the fantastical element is that there's a little talking bear. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been invited to London. Who's been invited to London. But there's no other real fantasy within the story. No, but, but it is fantastical. But, it's, <laughs> yeah. but also it's a t- talking bear that likes marmalade sandwiches, so it's kind of like, well, I guess it's fantasy. Yeah, and always has one in his hat, which never goes off. Uh, so, like, I guess that's the fantastic element as well. Just this <laughs> endless marmalade uh, and and bread that, will, that never seems to go stale. Um. <laughs> but it is absolutely part of the whole thing at childhood where... 
you know, anything that is real and normal and mundane, uh, when you're a child, it is unusual because you haven't experienced it before. So it's just as likely to happen as anything that we would consider too fantastical to be real. Yeah. And it, it's capturing that mindset where you're where you're like, yeah, anything could happen. Fairy tales could be real. Maybe there is a troll under that bridge, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and finally, amazing world building. Uh, and again, you know, we've touched on world building, so we're not going to go into massive detail, but world building doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a whole new fantastic world. With six new languages. With six new languages. Looking at you, Tolkien. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, world building can also just be something which is small, uh, part based in reality, um, but it will feel vivid, it will feel real, and it will have that little sprinkle of wonder in yeah. some form or another it's the wonder and also weirdly it's kind of the author's writing with authenticity as well so if you think of i'm trying to think of a mundane children's classic and by mundane i don't mean boring i just mean something that doesn't include fantasy elements at all and i'm coming up with judy bloom and the way that she wrote very honestly and in some instances quite poignantly about growing pains and about uh, puberty and about uh your life changing like your parents getting divorced i think maybe jacqueline wilson with some of her books does the same thing yeah absolutely um and it, it's it's world building i mean if we um i think it if it's um oh god i've forgotten jacqueline wilson's book it's is it is it uh dustbin baby dustbin baby that's it that's exactly the one i was thinking of. Yeah. i was like is it trash and i was like no because she is no that's not dustbin baby yes where of course we just have the main character going through you know the foster system and the 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 kind of the adoption system and it's all set in reality but it's amazing world building it feels very real not again just because it's based in reality but because she has really kind of built all of it up she's she's really um evoked the setting yeah, absolutely. Done her research. And I think so, it's being able to step into that mind of a child as well. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, because children will notice very quickly if they are reading a character who's not a child. And this is, this is an interesting thing because... Uh, Children don't want to be talked down to, and they shouldn't be, you know. They're often much more intuitive and intelligent than we give them credit for. Um, and so you can have a character who is incredibly smart, who does this, that, and the other, um, and, you know, is well beyond their years, even if they are still themselves a child. Uh, but a child will know if this is if this has been written with the with the kind of mindset of a child you know in mind yeah, they will absolutely. know if it if it's an if it's actually written as an adult character which is why you can have adult characters in children's fiction because they'll still actually be a child yeah definitely okay so um another one is uh slices of history um or sort of alternative lives yeah now this is this is a weird one but it does kind of fit and it's the fact that a lot of books that <laughs> weirdly enough, uh, have turned out to be children's classics, weren't written with the express idea of being children's classics. They were written with this express idea of telling that story, which mm -hmm. means they haven't been vague about setting. So 
we're not vague at the beginning of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We know the Pevensey children are being are, are being sent as evacuees to the country, and their parents are staying in London while the Blitz is going on. We know it's mm-hmm. set against a backdrop of World War Two. Yeah. Um, and there's various other examples as well, whereas those which are a bit more woolly about their setting seem for some reason not to endure in the same way. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because it's the opposite for fairy tales. <laughs> yeah, it is a complete opposite. I think because for us, although to be think, if you think about it, fairy tales are all set somewhere. They're all set in Once Upon a Time. And I think as children, we're willing to accept that Once Upon a Time is actually a place. This is true. This is true. Um, yeah, I, I do agree. I think the other thing with the sort of the slices of history is that in particular, if you look at a lot of children's classics, they are set during very particular points in history. And these are points in history which tend to be the, uh, the ones that we focus on in school as part of sort of the history learning. And they also, because they tend to be the sort of the biggest turning points in history, um, and they also tend to be very interesting, usually for a number of different reasons. So we do have the Blitz, we have sort of World War One, World War Two um, coming in, uh, but also Tudor England tends to be very popular. Um, and uh, sort of the Roman period tends to be very popular. Um, I remember how much I just gobbled up Caroline Lawrence's uh, The Roman Mystery series, which was so beautifully written and so evocative, um, and where the setting played such an intrinsic and such an interesting part of the story. Um, So yeah, I, I do completely agree that these slices of history tend to be very effective in children's fiction. Yeah, definitely. It's the whole thing where you know, as adults, we like historical fiction because it's a holiday to the past, even if it's not a great past, you know, it's a holiday that um, children get to visit the past and realise that, you know, they're not so different from the children who lived then or, you know, perhaps they're slightly better off, perhaps they're not. And yes, it's a comparison, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually got a slight sort of little academic tangent about this, which I, I'm, I'm going to try not to uh, sort of go on about too much Um, but historical fiction and fantasy fiction do have kind of a lot in common in this regard uh, for a lot of different reasons and there is a reason I think in particular that we see them uh, being used so much in children's fiction. Um, Now uh, I think I've mentioned her before, um, the uh, uh, academic uh, uh, Nicola um, Villanueva, I think that's her name. Have I have I mentioned her before? I think I you have just mentioned be... her. Yeah. Yes. Um, basically, um, this whole idea that um, historical fiction can be used very particularly to explore issues, uh, current issues, by focusing on similar problems in history. And when I talk about current issues, those can be emotional issues as well. Um, and basically they encourage readers to be critical by providing multiple perspectives on those kind of historical events. So, you know, fantasy at the same time offers children this kind of rehearsal, uh, this exploration of the world by giving them a chance to develop empathy. Um, 
and Nicola uh, uh, Villanueva has this idea about defamiliarization, um, which is basically the distance created by fantastical and historical events encourage readers to perceive characters as individuals which are separate from themselves. Um, and by engaging with these characters, they are using empathetic skills rather than projecting their own feelings. Um, so essentially, when we have this idea of kind of building empathy in children, historical and fantastic fiction um, work brilliantly in that regard, because rather than children just basically saying, ah, oh, this is my life, they are looking at something which is entirely new. They are getting to be those visitors in this new world, and they are developing empathy at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, yes. Um, okay. So the next one is themes. Yeah, very ah, much themes. Like, yeah, the, the very reason fairy tales endure is the themes. And I think in a lot of cases with classics and certainly with children's classics, the reason they endure is the themes because mm -hmm. ultimately they're concerned with the things that make us human. So um, one big theme is love, different types, oh, not necessarily romantic love, but different types of love. Yes. Um, it can be just general love for your own your own species, I guess, um, or for various. <laughs> I'm trying to think of good examples here, but um... actually, I've, I've I've got a really good one. There's been the which is now rapidly becoming a classic, which is uh, the boy, the mole, the horse, and the fox. Yeah, I I'm, might have I got those haven't... the wrong way around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can't remember the right way around either. But yes, you're right. It is and that's a strangely that's a weirdly philosophical work as well it, it really is um and i think for me it's a perfect example of of how children's classics can almost be you know if you look at it you go how why would this be for children and then at the same time you totally understand why it is for children and why yeah. it has worked so well and it is very much about love um and it's this love between this essentially this found family of different species that have all kind of been united under different sort of by by different sort of elements but love is this this great sense of warmth throughout um yeah and i, I think i'd also add things like um a little princess by francis hodgson burnett and mm -hmm. also things like the railway children and five children in it by e nesbitt yes where um, certainly the Inez bit ones, they're very strongly concerned with uh, filial and familial love. Yes. Um, where, where children are completely out of their depth. <laughs> Five children in it does have the comedy value of this is this is like a series of be careful of what you wish for and every single time they wish for something bad yeah. <laughs> that goes horribly <laughs> wrong. Um, but they learn a lot every time they do it. Um, but they, none of them, it's four children no, and a baby. I can't mm -hmm. believe the mother allows them to take this this nine month old baby out on adventures with them. <laughs> it's pre verbal. This child is pre verbal. Yes. <laughs> and they just disappear go out of the house with a bottle of lemonade and a picnic blanket and disappear all day and make deals with this sand fairy. <laughs> yeah. Everything goes horribly wrong. But they never <laughs> abandon each other, even when they fight. Um in Nesbit. Uh, the railway children is even more poignant because it's four children who are looking after a very very sick mother their father's away fighting in the war and they they resort to sort of stealing coal and things from the railway um, station and obviously get found out and 
things could have gone very badly, except that the love they've all got for each other sort of shines through and it, it makes people reconsider what's been going on. They're not, they're not okay, the, again, the story's a bit dated in some respects, but they're not tinkers, perhaps, stealing for the sake of it. They're kind of like they're trying to protect the mother. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by that same token, um, we have a lot of love as big themes, but we also have fear. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, again, uh, sorry, it's, it's going to sound silly when I say that's a big one, but it really, really is because, again, also depending on the age group, um, there are a lot of things that children fear. Um, and some of those things are monsters. Some of those things are living monsters, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it can be as simple as, I'm afraid my dad's not going to come back. It can mm -hmm. be something as big as I'm being thrust into adulthood and I don't feel ready for it yet. Because, you know, the whole thing with adulthood rights and things is that you don't become an adult until you learn how to manage fear. You learn that it's never going to completely go away, but you have to find ways and tools of managing it. Or it can be very, very literal as in, oh God, this evil wizard is trying to take over the world and I'm the only one who can stop them and I never asked for any of this. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, a lot of uh, authors do use metaphor as well. Um, I mean, Neil Gaiman obviously uh, does that <laughs> a lot of the times where this fear, uh, you know, the, the way that the fear manifests is actually um, a different kind of fear, um, which is more to do with the self and theme. And yes, okay, so it's manifested as a, a giant octopus. Uh, or, I mean, James of the Giant Peach does this obviously as That's well. That's such a creepy book. It is. It's very creepy. It's a very sinister book. It is yeah, very, very sinister. It does what it sets out to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so fear is a, is a big one. Um, and I think that's only natural, uh, particularly because a lot of children's fiction is about confronting fear or basically accepting fear. Okay, um, so acceptance and belonging, obviously. Yeah, always um, a big one. This is a really, really big one. Um, and again, you'll see it in certain age groups, uh, particularly for uh, children at sort of certain development ages where they are starting to kind of uh, find themselves um, more as kind of individuals. And because of that, they might actually feel more ostracized. Uh, they might sort of feel like they don't belong anywhere the looking for one's people, looking to be accepted, again, looking to be loved and all of, I mean, those are kind of universal things that sort of happens when you're, it starts happening when you're a child. And I think it doesn't ever really go away. There is a reason that we love found family so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that sort of goes hand in hand with friendship, um, which yeah. you could argue is an offshoot of, of the themes of love. but. Um, friendship is kind of about picking family for yourself yeah. to a certain extent, isn't it? And uh, learning what your shared values and things are, learning where you personally would morally draw the line, even though you wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms for, or a child wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms. They do tend to understand that that's what they're doing. This is right. This is wrong kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. We also have the themes of powerlessness. Um, again, 
very, very much something that we will sort of see in children's fiction because I think children do often feel powerless. Um, and when you think about it, uh, it happens all the time. They're stripped of power, stripped of choice, um, and that's not always necessarily out of some sort of meanness or anything like that, but think about the fact that all they know is that an adult comes into their room in the morning, wakes them up, tells them they've got to go to school, they eat at a certain time, etc. They've got schedules and stuff like that, and while this can be good for them, it can also result in this sense of, I have no control over anything that happens, yeah. uh, which is why children can also be very particular about their sort of their toys or stuff like that, because these are the very few things that they can control. And so powerlessness, I think, is very important um, to represent in children's fiction, because it's something that children feel all the time. Yeah, and it can tap into things like there is a new baby brother or sister. Yes. Or I, my parents are moving house. And I'm being yeah. taken away from everything I knew. And that's that seems like a huge wrench for a, a child at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've am i got, my, we can't keep the dog for some reason. Yeah. Which, you know, be an awful one, personally. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it's any of those sorts of things. And the only real power a child has in those respects is often to act out to act in a way that would court disapproval because that is the only th that that's the sole consolation they've got left so in the same way that the only power a baby has is to cry when something's wrong mm -hmm. depending on the age of the child the only thing that you can't necessarily express your feelings in words even though they are they are as complex as an adult's feelings so all you can do is act out <laughs> yeah absolutely um okay so our final point is uh, that children's classics tend to also incorporate a learning experience, um, which sounds like an issue because, as we've said, children don't like to be patronised or talked down to, and they don't necessarily like to be overtly taught, and yet we all learn by story, so that is yes. absolutely what is happening um, in children's classics. Yes. So, um, one that we see a lot of is uh, books which teach children to confront problems via reworking the problem into sort of a fantasy or a fantastical setting. And when I say fantastical setting, I, I can also mean just a historical setting, because that is fantastical for a, for us in the modern day. Yeah, a good example of this is C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, whereby mm -hmm. Jill Pohl and uh, Eustace Scrubs are being bullied at this all-new style school they're at at the mm -hmm. time where children are allowed to, as C.S. Lewis puts it, do exactly what they like. And what a lot of the children like to do is bully the, the other children who are smaller than them. Um, yeah. And Jill and Eustace are running away from the bullies and they accidentally run right into Narnia, where they get swept up in a quest looking for um, the prince. I think it's... I want I want to say it's Prin Prince Rillian, I believe. Mm. Um, and after all the, the questing they do over Ettins Moor and the North Mountains, etc., when they're finally deposited unceremoniously back in, in England, the bullies are still running towards them, except now that they're armed with... The Jill and Eustace are armed with swords. Um, so they, and, and Aslan's with them as well. And he sort of says, look, they are just children. They're, 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 
stupid and they don't really know what they're doing so yes see to them but only hit them with the flat of the swords don't actually cut them kind of thing yeah. and they end up beating them off and i think the, the point that's being made there is giving is the sense of proportion as in yes it's really unpleasant to have bullies take after you now look at a really really big problem and look how strong you can be under those circumstances the bullies actually look quite small now don't they yeah absolutely absolutely um, uh, that's a that's a really good example of it yeah so um this sort of leads us on to honestly i saw this on a blog and i'm like i kind of agree and i mostly don't and i don't like the way you put it um, basically that the learning experience can be with teaching children morals and they cited they very definitely cited the fact that uh the way the chronicles of narnia teach children about the christian religion in a sneaky mm -hmm. fashion um, I have to say that the Christian message of the Chronicles of Narnia went over my head because I was 100% there for the fantasy and I felt really betrayed when I was 11 and someone pointed out that Aslan was like a Jesus allegory <laughs> and I was just like what? But these, these are fantasy, these are brilliant fantasy books, how can they possibly <laughs> be about Christianity? Um, but obviously you can see the parallels. Yes. And the thing is, I'm not necessarily sure that morality is the right word. I think Madeline's way of putting it, whereby a lot of books are about teaching children empathy and the fact that they're not the centre of the universe and that everyone else is equally important, is a better way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I would agree. Morality... The problem with morality is that, yes, while we can agree that there are certain sort of things which have been universal, is that the parameters of morality change. Yeah. Um, that sounds counterintuitive, uh, but it's true. Um, but the parameters of empathy don't, which is why what I think kind of actually makes a children's classic different. Uh, for example, if you, you know, looked at a book from a kind of a, a while back it can be full of very offensive things which the which the narrator wouldn't have thought of as immoral and yet which we kind of turn around and go actually no we we don't we don't agree with this at all and if that was all that was in it that would kind of never stand the test of time uh whereas we do have examples of of kind of books and children's books which are still considered classics which we turn around and we go we don't like this part of it but there is something ultimately still about it which is important um and which you know outweighs um the other part because the other part can be given context because yeah. of the time um this doesn't happen with all of them and obviously there is a balancing act sometimes you just can't you can't weigh those two things up yeah. um but the thing that kind of will make it universal is the empathy this desire to be kind not because it's good to be kind but because humans deserve to be treated kindly empathetically yeah. um and so i think that that is why it's more to do with empathy than morality yeah definitely um, there's obviously the examining other points of view and broadening perspective because, you know, you're a child, you probably haven't travelled the world, or you probably haven't had lots of life experiences. Maybe you have, mm -hmm. but most children haven't. They tend to stay in, in one place, largely. Um, and I, I'm going to combine this with the next point, which is that having books that take you outside of that and ask you to empathise with other characters 
kind of stand as a direct challenge and contrast to what your actual relatives may be saying. Now, maybe you are really lucky and like in certain respects, I was with with my parents on things like, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ type issues, whereby none of that was really a problem. <laughs> I had yeah. I had amazingly broad minded parents on that particular issue. And again, I wasn't subject to lots of racist rhetoric or anything as I was growing up. So, but I know I, I grew up with other children who their homes were not safe places for those even discussing those topics who were their parents were very much we don't like these sorts of people um mm-hmm. at, at which point you've got to get that contrast from somewhere else and books that provide that contrast are invaluable yeah i completely agree and i you know i had a very similar situation very open-minded parents um uh, and very when I say open-minded, you know, for the period and stuff like that, uh, and and things like that, I had parents who uh, we could safely talk about those things. I could safely talk about sexuality and stuff like that with them. Um, and I think one thing to also remember is that yes, you can have those big things, which is discussing things like um, sort of prejudice, uh, discussing sort of. Um, issues of of being queer of identity and stuff like that these are value invaluable um in children's fiction and if you look at some of our past episodes we've talked about the need for this uh both to educate those who are do not experience that um and to provide a, a, a sort of a line and a sort of a dialogue for those who do but or are trying to figure themselves out but also we see it on a smaller level um one thing that kind of a lot of people overlook is grief for example yeah. um when you are in a family um, who are sort of, uh, you have suffered some kind of bereavement. Some families don't actually deal with the bereavement very well. They don't come together as a unit. Uh, You're not allowed to talk about death. You're not allowed to kind of, uh, to sort of examine it. Um, Or you might also be in a situation where someone is gravely ill and no one in the household is allowed to talk about the possibility of death despite the fact that actually you need to do that. When death is coming, or the possibility of death is coming, particularly as a child, you need somewhere to process that. And so a children's book can be the place that allows children to challenge um, and to experience and to go through the motions of grief, to look at bereavement and death and both that this is going to sound stupid both the humor of it um you're thinking what's humorous about it but the fact of the matter is is that when anyone dies it is a high stress situation and more often than not comedy will come out of that i believe i've said it in the past but in the middle of my mother's funeral when they brought in the coffin my brother and i sat in the pews laughing um because we couldn't help it because my mother was a very tiny woman. She was very small and she had to be flown over from the UAE. Uh, and so they had standard coffins because she died in the UAE. And so they had standard coffins uh, which were used to kind of uh, 
proper, uh, properly sealed coffins, which we used to transport um, bodies. And of course, these were designed for people in the UAE. So even one of the smaller ones that they had was humongous. Yeah. And so my brother and I both looked at this humongous coffin and we started laughing because all we could think of was like, is she on stilts in there? Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that you see that often. Um, people laughing at funerals, people laughing at death, and it's why black comedy works so well. Um, because there is humour there. And it's one of those things which sometimes reality doesn't say, it says you are not allowed to do this and fiction allows you to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's very briefly look at some examples. Some of these we've already talked about, um, yeah. so we won't go into a lot of detail. Um, but these are just, you know, when we're talking about children's classics, these are some of the ones you might consider. So um, The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham, we've obviously talked about that in mm -hmm. a relative amount of detail in other episodes as well. But there's a reason that has enduring power with children. And again, it's that connection with the anthropomorphic animals. <laughs> Yes. And the fact it's quite funny. It's actually a pretty funny story and it's slightly ridiculous. I think children like something that's slightly ridiculous as well. Yeah. But it's also heartfelt. Yeah. And definitely. it is full of kindness and sweetness as well. Um uh the little white oh sorry. I missed one. Missed <laughs> I missed several. I scrolled. Um The Secret uh, Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This is actually not brilliantly structured in fact it's very badly structured she changes pov narrators halfway through and never yeah. goes back and we end up with a happy ending for the child who kind of didn't what well, didn't start the story but i think the yeah. point of the story about two children you know one of them orphaned and the other one basically abandoned by his father because he's afraid the child is going to die mm -hmm. um is an incredibly poignant one and they create this sort of found family unit and then they they pull father back into it as well and it turns out to be a lovely story and it's sort of interwoven with this idea of a garden coming back to life as well yeah absolutely the literally hope springing to life uh winnie the pooh a a mel um, um i mean there's just <laughs> there's so much it, it just it never disappears does it <laughs> um Considering that A.A. Milne was someone who wrote war propaganda, it's amazing that this is, is so enduring, and yet it is, because this Winnie the Pooh, at its heart, is uh, a series of stories about acceptance. Yeah. Uh, no one in that story is ever asked to be anything except who they are. Um, so regardless of what you think of the author and the whole situation with his son, um, yeah. you know, Winnie the Pooh is just about accepting and being... A friend being a good friend and having a curiosity about the world around them without without setting themselves up as a, as a great intellect there's a reason why Winnie the Pooh has been weirdly adopted by kind of like um, people who embrace a more Buddhist type mindset because it does kind of it does you can transfer it onto Buddhism quite easily strangely enough yeah yeah I would completely agree and there's just something I mean, it sounds silly to say cuddling, cuddly and comfortable <laughs> with yeah. Winnie the Pooh. You can't deny it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you've got the tale of Peter Rabbit as well. Yeah, there is a lot in Beatrice Potter which now would horrify us. 
Yes. But I, the fact that these books were very deliberately designed for children and to be the size that small children could hold in their hands, which was something that had never been done before for children in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. or any era at all, really, because books were for adults. Um, they, and with these beautiful full-colour drawings as well. Again, you've got the anthropomorphic animals. It's stories that children can identify with. They're not massively complicated stories, and they're not... Um, a lot of it is about naughty people getting their comeuppance. So there's definitely a moralising tone to some of them. And yet they've endured because, at their heart, they were designed for children, I believe. Uh, we've got The Little White Horse uh by Elizabeth Gouge, um, or Gouge, I don't know. Uh, We've discussed this fairly recently, um, but again, it's an enduring one for a reason. It it, it ticks all of the boxes uh, that we've kind of said above, um, and it just feels homely and whimsical and um, magical, I think. Yeah, it it does have an enduring charm. Yes, there are a few little bits that are a bit dated now. You'd expect that it was, you know, published in the 1940s. Yes, so <laughs> you can't all, have everything. Which is, terrifyingly <laughs> is closer to 100 years ago than not. <laughs> no. Just another 20 years and it's like, oh, that was 100 years old. Um, with the Chronicles of Narnia not being terribly far behind it. Um, mm. Yeah, there's issues with the Chronicles of Narnia again, as we said, but... The, uh, these books would not have endured to the point where they're I, I have lost count of how many printings they've had now but they still turn up regularly in the library now and children are still reading them now and it doesn't matter that they're talking about a time when there were no mobile phones or televisions and you could buy 12 sweets for a penny or anything like that um, children yeah. are still lapping them up and it it, uh, you know, whether they're getting the sort of Christian prescribed message or not, it doesn't matter because it's the fantasy that's attracting them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Weird Stone of Brisingamen, which I reread recently because I hadn't read it for a while, is is kind of a bit Tolkien light, but it's also folk horror. Um, but it is a great children's story. The only criticism I'd level is that the two main characters, Colin and Susan, who are children, don't necessarily sound like children (laughs) for some of it. But the actual overall story and the fantastical creatures in it do read like childlike characters in a lot of ways. So you get the whole fairy tale thing, you get the fantasy adventure thing, uh, the idea that anything could happen, that, you know, just below this world that's very normal and mundane, there's all this, this sort of folk horror mythology going on. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of funny because um, this was a book which my dad read as a child. Um, And again, this sort of shows it being a classic was that he read, loved it as a child, and he gave it to me when I came to a a certain age and to my brother as well. Um, And it's kind of got passed down the generation, though, because fun fact, the the story is based very near where my my dad was born and where he lived yeah it's um, cheshire isn't it yeah so. in, in cheshire um and so uh, there, there was this kind of this this element i think where it was just they're like oh this could almost happen you know what i mean yeah um yeah and it, it is one of those uh that sort of dips into sort of mythology and stuff like that uh, we've got obviously Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, Matilda, the Witches, the BFG. I mean, just Roald Dahl in general. Um, 
really did right successfully for children again not talking about the controversy um but just sort of looking at his work uh and how it affected children i know that he was a a big favorite of mine when i was growing up probably not least because as someone who was dyslexic um a lot of fiction felt very very difficult inaccessible it was kind of an uphill struggle to even get through a book and Roald Dahl's fiction was short and it made language fun yeah and again it's I think in almost every single one of his books the child is in a difficult situation and manages to triumph and there's usually an adult who is behaving in a way that we would probably if we looked at it in a mundane way would consider abusive or at least negligent Um, so I mean if you think of Matilda Matilda's awful, two negligent parents and then um, you know, the Trunchbull Aunt Trunchbull, Miss Honey's um, (laughs) Miss Honey's aunt who uh, was horribly abusive to her as a child to the point where it carried on into adulthood and she still had that hold over her, it really looks at child abuse and yet in a way that is accessible for children without dumbing it down so yeah probably not the nicest guy in the world but he did understand some stuff that was very important yeah absolutely absolutely um mrs frisbee and the rats of nim by robert c (laughs) o'brien again technically adult characters but they are rats and mice so (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it doesn't matter it doesn't count because they're not human um this is I think what's really lovely about this book is it's not the strongest person or the cleverest person who wins. It's the person who loves the most. And it's Mrs. Frisbee desperately trying to save the life of her son, Timothy, who is too sick to be moved on moving day. Um, He has pneumonia. And uh, she tries everything. She endangers her own life by going first to the owl and then going to the rats to get them to help her if you know if they can't move her son maybe they can move the, brick, the hollow brick they live in mm-hmm. um and to the point where it the whole thing feels magical but the, the one magical thing that happens doesn't happen until right at the very end and it's just because she has this ongoing faith in that respect it's almost like a fairy tale you know mm-hmm. um having your your utmost ideal in front of you and letting nothing turn you aside from it um, and it also looks at things like how humans assume we've got this biological exceptionalism which is obviously not how they phrase it in the book but the idea that we're more important than every other organism on the planet and it's just not true yeah so it feeds that in there and gets children thinking about that early on which i highly applaud yeah absolutely uh we've got Howl's moving castle yeah which again technically adult cast uh, adult castles adult characters because sophie's 18 and how yes. in his early 20s and it doesn't yeah, except sophie oh sophie then becomes an old woman sophie and again remember like 97 she? yeah remember what i said about old women <laughs> the elderly seem to work very very well uh in in children's fiction <laughs> and it's just such a great book in fact we should have we should have mentioned that one for our modern fairy tales one probably but yeah we probably should have it's um <laughs> It, it follows like the fairy tale formula and then deconstructs it and it's so funny it is such a funny book it really really is um and if you've only ever seen the the film be prepared there are changes 
Yeah, the the book is very different from the film. The film, I think, captures the spirit of the book, and I love the film, and I love the book, and they're they're two separate things. Diana Wynne-Jones loved the film. She really loved the way they'd interpreted Mm -hmm. her book. So that's usually a good sign, because when someone changes something so fundamentally, the author still goes, yeah, I love what they did with that. Um, That usually means they've really captured the spirit of it. Okay, I'm going to finish off with The Whitby Witches, which is an acknowledged modern children's classic. It it Mm -hmm. achieved that status and got, a, I think, was it a 25th anniversary reprint? Mm -hmm. Um, I know you didn't manage to get through it when you first tried it, did you? But um, No. But anyway, once again, you're looking at two children who have lost their parents... And they later discover it's part of a far bigger overreaching plot by some gods, but that comes much later. Mm-hmm. And they, they're just shoved around the foster care system. And the reason they keep getting rehomed is that the younger child, Ben, has the sight and he sees things that disturb people and they just can't wait to get rid of him. And of course, his older sister, Janet, won't go anywhere without Ben. Yeah. And eventually they go to... Um, <laughs> Alice Boston, who is a 92-year-old woman, who would not be the first pick for adopting two children at 92. However, she pulls some strings. She's got connections. um, And they go to live with her, and finally they've got a place where they're kind of understood and cherished and and loved for a while, even though she's, you know, 92. And it just gives them that platform and stability. So you've got that sort of found family thing, but then you've got all the spooky goings-on as well, because Ben having the sight means that he kind of sees when things start to go go south in Whitby. And the fact that, actually, there's a big black hound wandering around. Yes. <laughs> and this, this does not bode well for some of the other stuff that's going on. It's, it, it's, it's got a slow start. It was Robin Jarvis's first book, and in that respect, it's probably not his best. But in terms of having original ideas... Um, that kind of encapsulate the childhood experience. I think he he probably doesn't have very many equals in that respect. It is an incredibly good and intelligent read in yeah. that respect. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to note that I the, the struggles I had with it uh, were very, very personal. Uh, so it's it's nothing to do with the quality of the book and everything to do with just the, the, the time I was reading it and, and, and very personal kind of things. I mean, I'll be um, perfectly honest. I think uh, when I was 14, I picked up and read the first couple of chapters and put it down for months and then I picked it up again. So that mm-hmm. initial one, I had that initial, I'm not sure if I like this. So Yeah, I, I might go for just... an audio book of it if there's a good audio book. Yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. I think it's on script, actually. Oh, okay. That's worth knowing. So, yeah, um, I guess we're, we're at the kind of the end of our sort of our episode. I mean, what do you, what do you think is your favourite classic? Uh, <laughs> only one. Um, we've mentioned quite a lot of them, and I'm probably going to think of others. Um, there's loads that you know have got a strong hold in my heart I do love The Wind in the Willows I do love The Weird Stone of Prison Gammon um, obviously Whitby Witches anything about Robin Jarvis to be honest big fan <laughs> um, but there are modern classics as well like some of Tamora Pierce's books I think they're a bit they're a bit young at the moment to be modern classics but I think they might head in that direction mm. um, and then there's things like His Dark Materials which I think will become an acknowledged modern classic so so yeah, there, there's there's loads. There's 
so much really great children's literature out there. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Um, it's interesting because if you'd asked me this, you know, as a child, I would have said Harry Potter. Um, and of course, circumstances have changed because I think circumstances can change whereby a book can end up kind of losing its sort of... Uh, it's run because it, it, it is sort of affected by reputation and by context and stuff like that. Um, looking back now, I think if I was sort of to choose a sort of a, a classic which really kind of reverberated with me um, and not sort of just pick at the ones that we've already talked about, um, I think I probably would just have to talk about Caroline Lawrence and I think I say she's a quieter author, um, you know, less people might be familiar with her. But I think from a very personal perspective, her work has been incredibly enduring. Um, and for me, it, it was very formative um, and it had a lot of the elements which really do make a classic. Her Roman mysteries, I mean, it's a group of kids solving mysteries and solving crimes in, in ancient Rome while some of the most tumultuous events are happening, like the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's amazing. Um, in terms of kind of more modern stuff, I do think uh, there is a, a certain author um, whose name has just escaped me, uh, who I think is going to become someone who is a, sort of a classic author. Um, that's it. It's Sophie Anderson. She wrote The House with the Chicken Legs and, and, and things like that. And there is something about her work which, again, has all the hallmarks of what I think will kind of will make a classic. Um, but we don't know. We can't really know. There is actually more children's fiction than ever now. And I am so looking forward to seeing how it affects the world and what stays, what kind of goes, because I do think that there are examples of things that should have been classics, which for some reason didn't quite get their opportunity. But I do think that we are going to see some brilliant inclusions um, in the canon from the last sort of 20 years. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, we have reached the end of our episode now. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And uh, I'm going to recommend uh, something, a film which has just been released on Netflix. Now, a few weeks ago, I recommended a graphic novel which looked at um, the journey to the West called Monkey King. Um, and now I'm going to recommend the same thing, except it's not the same thing. It has the same title, Monkey King. But it is a new animated uh, movie which looks at the beginning part of the journey to the West, uh, examining the history of Monkey um, and how he ended up getting his title as Monkey King, how he became the great sage, etc. It is an adaptation. It isn't 100% faithful to uh, the real um, canon story, um, but it's fun, it's full of hearts, it is funny, and it's beautifully animated, and it is available on Netflix. So I really do recommend it. It's a great sort of 
film night watch so definitely worth checking out cool and on that note guys we will say thanks very much for listening get in touch and tell us what your favorite children's classics are and until then we'll say see you next week and bye-bye yeah thanks and goodbye bye You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>